So um, I won't tell you that one of the pastors, when they were interviewing Matt, said, hey, by the way, this is not like a graduation. It's more like a funeral, um, which is an appropriate thing because what he's committing to is wherever God calls, he'll go, even if he doesn't want to. And so that's uh, one of the things we want to celebrate with him. But it is. It's less a celebration, more a funeral in a weird kind of way. But we're really excited for him. So, um, so I was thinking about moments that are transcendent. That probably isn't one, although he really likes books. So like, that's a good thing for him. Um, but I was thinking about transcendent moments. You know the moments where like, you don't really have the words to describe them after the fact? Moments in which you have experienced something that has left you changed or different, or you just left there like, I just wish I could stay here longer, right? Maybe it's a concert you went to, like some of you have heard have gone to like Taylor Swift concerts. Maybe it's like that. I don't know. Um, they're really long. I get that. But, but you know, maybe it's a, a going to the beach, or maybe it's on a hike in the wilderness, or whatever it might be. It's these moments in which you recognize you're connected to something beyond yourself. In fact, Oxford Dictionary defines... Transcendence as this, existence or experience beyond the normal or physical level, right? So beyond our normal life. Maybe it's like a really good sermon on a Sunday morning. Probably not for some of you, right? But let's, maybe it's that. Who knows what it is? It's something that we find ourselves drawn to or connected with, and we know we're a part of something bigger than us, right? I was thinking about a couple years ago, I was at Arizona State on their campus, and I went and watched Arizona State play UCLA in men's basketball, and Arizona State had only beaten them a couple times in history, but UCLA was ranked number two in the country, and in triple overtime, Arizona State upset UCLA, and all the students rushed the court, and it was just a cool experience to be there. Or years ago, I was able to go watch the greatest quarterback to ever play football. And his name is not Tom Brady, it's Peyton Manning. And I was watching the Colts play the Philadelphia Eagles and they were down going into the fourth quarter, like a couple touchdowns and Peyton Manning led a few comeback touchdown drives and they won at the end of regulation. And it was like a cool game to be there and everyone leaving 60,000 people going, man, did you see what Peyton Manning did today? So cool, by the way. Transcendent moment. Still remember it. But moments, right, these are moments we have that they, they're these kind of other moments they redefine for us, like these experiences. We wish we could go back to them and experience them over and over again. They remind us that we have been a part of something beyond ourselves, something outside of us, something that we could never experience on our own. And most of the time when we have these moments, they leave us longing to be connected to something deeper. In fact, this is where God comes in. Pretty much every religion of the world is centered around the idea that we want something transcendent to happen, but, but most of them are centered that it has to be something so other out there. But what we find is that the God of the Bible invites us to come to know him, to enter into relationship in such a way that it's not just out there, but it is in here. It is both there and here. It is this connection that we find to God in a way that the Christian God invites us into, to know him. What we find over time is this, that it isn't just these transcendent moments that are to define our faith, but it's the everyday action of our life. Right, and so I'm going to do something that um, if you were taking a preaching course, we'd tell you not to do. Maybe in a speech class you would do this, but never in a preaching course. I'm going to tell you the whole sermon right here in like a line or two, and then try to bring us back to that line or two. So some of you in the room are like, sweet. What he says in the next two minutes, I can then sleep until we leave. 
Hope you'll stay awake, but here's the point, right? Here's the whole point of this entire sermon. Jesus understood that people wanted to be connected to something out there and near. He knew all about transcendent moments. We could talk about the, his transfiguration. We could talk about his baptism when he comes out of the water and God says to him, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. But he also noticed that the everyday things of life, gathering for meals, there was something special that happened and connected people to God. In fact, it's why when he was asked this question, what's the greatest commandment, he gives this answer, to love God and to love others. So differently, here's the whole point of the Christian faith. Our love of God is seen in how we love others. Our love of God is seen in how we love others. Now, to be fair, you and I can't love God until we have received his love. Until we come to recognize the depth of God's love for you and I, not even death itself can keep us from God's love. There is no way you and I can love God or other people until we've come to know the fullness of who he is and his love for us because anything less than that, we can't live from that place of love. But it brings us back to why Jesus was asked the question about the greatest commandment. And it brings us back to the journey we've been walking through this fall and will continue to walk through today. We began looking a few weeks ago at how God calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to be so great. I want to bless your family. I want to bless you to be a blessing to the world. I will make you a great nation, more numerous than the sand on the seashore. I will do a radical thing in and through you. And then we find Joseph becomes this, it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Joseph to Jacob, I'm sorry, and his son Joseph who finds himself sold into slavery and there he is a slave in Egypt, and he becomes the one to rescue the people of Israel. And not only does he rescue them, but then the problem becomes for Joseph, he becomes the one who basically buys people. He becomes a slave trader. And eventually leads to Israel, finding themselves enslaved in Egypt, crying out to God. God calls Moses. Moses says, not me, send somebody else. Moses shows up and he says, okay, God, I'll do what you've called me to do. And he shows up and he begins to lead God's people out. And as we looked at last week, God's people are led out of Israel or out of Egypt towards Israel to be God's unique people. The problem for them becomes this. You can take the people out of Egypt, but it's tougher to get the Egypt out of the people because what has our heart sometimes has our heart in such a way that it pulls us away from where we know we want to go. And that's what we find begins to happen to these people over and over again. And God had made this promise when he called Moses at the burning bush, he said this, I will bring your people back and you will worship God on this holy mountain. And now, people find themselves in the wilderness wandering through, wondering if God is who he says he is, what if God will really do what he's said he's going to do. And like most of us, even though Moses has tried to faithfully lead them, they continue to grumble against God. And it's not that they just grumble against God, it's that the way in which they grumble, right? Like, we could go, God, we know you have rescued us and you have saved us. You provided food for us when it seemed like there was no food. And so, God, we just need you to provide a little more. Can we, can we find more water? But that's not what we find in the scripture. What we find is, God, did you just bring us in the wilderness to kill us? They just grumble. They're like children. God says to Moses, okay, Moses, give them water. Will you strike this rock with your staff? And so in Exodus 17, we see this scene. Moses strikes the rock, water pours out, and people have water. And again, God provides for these people. They're full of their whining, <clears throat> and Moses is trying to lead them. 
And then this interesting thing happens. It's kind of a side note, honestly, in the text. And so I pretend if we like put brackets on the story of the people, and then we go to the story of Moses. And there's kind of a life principle for all of us in here. It's a scene in which Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to him. He brings his daughter and his grandkids to be with their dad and, and says, hey, um, Moses, I see what God's doing. It's obvious that God has called you and he's using you, but there's some things going on here that honestly, I don't think God wants you to do in the way that you're doing them. And so here's what the text says from Exodus 18, verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter, because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Did you catch that? Moses is trying to do it all himself, right? Moses is bought into what so many of us have bought into. Like, like if I'm a real man, I'll just do it myself. I don't need help. That's the dumbest thing in the world, by the way. We all need help. No one can stand under the strain. That's the whole point of what we see. Jethro comes and goes, Moses, don't you get it? No one can do this on their own. You may be the one that God's called to lead these people, but he didn't say, hey, Moses, you can only do it by yourself. So Moses, empower other people to lead with you. And so he does. Right? Here's the reality. If we want to do something great on our own, our capacity is pretty small. It is. But the more we learn to enlist other people in whatever venture it may be, the greater our capacity, the greater the opportunity, the greater thing that can happen. And so Moses learns this lesson because he listens to the wisdom of his father-in-law in this instance. And then we see, right, we've talked about how Moses has had these significant moments with the burning bush, other moments with Pharaoh where God has has kind of been so transcendent. It's been this other, like, I don't know how to describe what God has done. He showed up in a way that only God could do. And we see this moment where the people of God, they have this encounter with God that would radically transform us, we think, I hope, I don't know, but we weren't there. But we see this moment from Exodus chapter 19. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the moment? Can you imagine being there where God shows up and there's smoke and there's fire and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's a mountain that is shaking and there's horns that are blowing? Can you just imagine for a moment being there and experiencing that? Can you imagine what might have gone through your mind? You would know this is a transcendent moment. This is a moment other than what is normal. This is outside the way of everyday life. It's a moment that you would think would be life-defining, but what we begin to find over time is these mountaintop moments are not enough to define our life. That the everyday grind of life, if it's just mountaintops and that's all which we see God or all the places that we look for God, it's just not enough. But then we see what happens next is Moses is on the mountain and God speaks to him and God speaks these words, and maybe they're familiar to you. In fact, they're the, the words in which we call the Ten Commandments, the ways in which God's people are called to live in relationship with God and others. And here's what we find. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. If you notice, we commonly refer to these things as the Ten Commandments, and what they represent for us is our connection to God on the first four, the, our relationship to God, and the last six are about our relationship to people. And so again, it's about what's it look like to live in a relationship with God or others. And Moses is given these commands, and while he's receiving them, when he's done, God, this is kind of cool scene that happens where Scripture says this, that when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Right? There was no printing press in the days of Moses. 
right? There were some papyrus and they could write, and, but it was just a lot of work. And so God himself inscribes on these stones what he desires for Moses to teach the people. And I was thinking about how, how this moment, how it must have been so defining to Moses. And I, I remember thinking like, well, yeah, he just kind of went out by himself and met with God, no big deal. And, and then um, the summer I climbed Mount Sinai, uh, it's more like a hike, but, but it's like 12,000 feet off the ground. Uh, it's like 3,200 meters. And you climbed the top of it, it took about two and a half hours, and I was like dripping sweat when I was done. And so what, what kind of struck me as I got to the top was this, that Moses was an old man when he did this, so it like took some work. But the other thing was this, that there's maybe just maybe sometimes in our lives, it's not that God wasn't present at the bottom of the mountain, because God was just as present there as he was at the top, but maybe just maybe we have to separate ourselves and go somewhere and do some work on our end to where we become more aware of the presence of God. It takes some effort on our end sometimes. Not that God wasn't present there, but, but that when we do the work on our end, we begin to have different eyes to see differently. In fact, here's a picture um, from Mount Sinai looking out. You can see for as far as you want to see. Like, you can just keep looking. And here's a, a, a brief video that just shows kind of a panoramic view. If you turn, it's just lots of rock, and you can see forever. And again, perspective that when you meet with God on this mountain, it kind of puts some things in perspective because you're here. It took so much time to get there and you can see for as far as you want to see. And you're, you're there listening and it is quiet. There were no noises. Nothing. In fact, my son and I were the first two up there. And so there was about 10 minutes where literally there was no noise, not even like the, the gravel moving under your feet. It's quiet. As Moses finds it, when he separates himself, he goes to a new place. He begins to hear the voice of God. It's not that God is less present at the base of the mountain. It's that sometimes we need to do the work on our end to go to put ourselves in a position where we can more readily hear what God might have to say to us. But here's what I also have come to believe about Moses all throughout the scriptures. In his story, these mountaintop moments are to help him in his everyday life. Not, he doesn't live his everyday life hoping for the mountaintop moment. It's the everyday life that matters in the life of Moses. But the truth is, that's true for all of us. But sometimes if our faith is rooted only in the mountaintop moments, right, like being saved from slavery, walking across the, the parted Red Sea, seeing the mountain earthquake, and then like it's the normal day, and we're like, oh, I can't imagine those Israelite people. They're so like, they're just such a bunch of complainers. God's provided food and all this stuff, and they just keep complaining. And so Moses is gone too long. And here's what happens when our faith is only rooted in the mountaintop experience and not in every day. Here's what we find. Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So what? Wasn't just that long ago like you were just enslaved? You were just slaves not long ago. You were rescued from slavery. You were freed. You were given food and water, and all these things were provided for you, and you did nothing for them. Last week, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, right? You'll have so much like meat. You'll be coming out of your nostrils, right? It's a great picture. But... but You've had all these things, and yet you still are like, well, we don't know where Moses is, so we need a God we can look at and touch and feel. In other words, the idea of a God who's out there but present with us is not enough. I need to be able to touch him. 
So Aaron says, all right, well, give me your gold. And he makes a mold, and they make this golden calf, and they, they mold it, and it comes out of the fire. And they have this golden calf, and they have this big celebration. They begin to worship this golden calf. Look, here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. Meanwhile, Moses and God are having this conversation on the mountain, and, and God says to Moses, Moses, those people down there, they're a hot mess. They're down there having this massive celebration and party to this, some golden idol they've made for themselves instead of recognizing that I'm God. So I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth, okay? And Moses goes, God, don't you know who you are? You can't do that because then people will say, well, he just brought them out of Egypt just to kill them all. You can't do that because that's not the kind of God you are. And God's like, oh, you're right. I knew that. Moses comes down the mountain. He and Joshua are coming down and Joshua goes, hey, it sounds like war. And he's like, that's not war. That's the, like a, a party that's full of debauchery. That's what that is. And Moses gets down there and he gets down and he sees what's happening and he's so upset. He throws the, gold, the tablets and they're broken to pieces. And not only are they broken to pieces, what we then see happens next is that Moses pulls the ultimate dad move, by the way. It is totally a dad move. He takes that golden calf, he grinds it up and he sprinkles it in the water and he makes him drink it. I love that because it's like every you know, kid when your kids mix a bunch of food on their plate and you're like, you're going to eat that. I mean, you want to vomit looking at it, but you're going you're to eat that. It's like school cafeterias when they mix everything together. It's just gross, right? You're going to drink that water. And then he goes to his brother Aaron. And he's like, Aaron, what in the world happened here? And Aaron, because he doesn't really want to be, you know, like he knows he was wrong, but he doesn't want to take full ownership of this. And so he goes, well, you know, the craziest thing happened, Moses. You know, I, they gave me this gold. I threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. Weird. It's such a ludicrous answer that in the scripture, we, Moses doesn't even acknowledge it. He just ignores it and moves on. Because he's like, that's so dumb, I'm not going to give you dignity to respond to what you just said. And this is what we begin to find. And these people kept wandering from God because they were looking for God in, in kind of the wrong ways. They wanted God to be, look how they wanted him to look. They wanted to touch and feel. They wanted a God that they could make in their own image. Really, that's what that was about. But we see in what becomes known as the Sinai Covenant, this covenant between God and his people, he gives these commandments about the ways people are called to live. But by the days of Jesus, what started as 10 commandments became well over 600 commandments of how they're called to live. And so rather than moments of transcendence with God, we shifted to a checklist of rules that we live by. Rather than recognizing God was out there that we couldn't really categorize or understand, now God is in such a way that we don't know what to do. And Jesus finds himself in the middle of this, and he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? In fact, here's what the scriptures say. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now what Jesus did there is such a powerful thing. He took what, those ten commandments. He took the first four and said, here, do you know how you, how you summarize the first four? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay. And do you know how you, how you live out the last six? Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And numerous times in the Gospels, we find people like, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, mm, every human on the face of the earth is your neighbor, by the way. That's who your neighbor is. So how do we live as God's people in the world? We love God and we love others, right? We love all people. But what's this look like for us? You're like, well, but the Ten Commandments say, like, don't do these things. They list these things not to do. And here he says to do something, to love people, to love God and love others. It's a call to action. But here's where we're like, well, are they two different things? No, and here's why. Love doesn't commit adultery or lie or steal. Love doesn't murder or covet. Not just because they're wrong, but because that's not what love looks like. At least not love according to the scriptures. In fact, I mentioned the first verse, I mentioned again, right? We, we go, well, it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, right? Like, I, now, I want to be clear. I don't think you should say, oh, my God. I don't think it's a wise thing to say, period, especially if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. But what I will say is this. There's no way in the first century world that Jews were running on going, oh, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. They didn't do that. The question was this. When you said you were a follower of God and you lived a life that didn't reflect it, that's when you were taking God's name in vain. To say, I am a Christian or I am a follower of God, and then to live counter to the ways of God, that's what it means to take God's name in vain. Now, again, I would encourage you, there are plenty of other things you can say instead of, oh my God. But here's the reality for us. We don't do any of these things because they don't stem from love. Love doesn't do those things. Why? Because those things... They either harm us or they dehumanize others. They make us less than. They lower our capacity to love others well. And so what Jesus is trying to do is bring these moments together and go, hey, listen, like some of you, man, just in your faith, you love these moments with the divine, these transcendent worship moments, whatever they might be for you. You think they're incredible. Others, you're like, well, you people in your churches, you just act different. Why don't you love people better throughout the week? Why don't you do justice in the world? And Jesus is going, Yes! Why don't you worship me and do justice? Why don't you love me and live it out? Why don't you have transcendent moments in which you are in, in these great experiences, but then also live as a people who love others so well? It's why sometimes we'll say, like, we use phrases that, that our popular culture will say something about, like, there's a vertical relationship with God or a horizontal relationship with other people. And we'd say as Christians, if you think it's this or it's this, you're wrong. It's it's both. There is no separation from these ideas. We cannot say we love God and not love other people. Right? We can have all the mountaintop moments like Moses on the mountaintop, but if we miss that there are people at the foot of the mountain, then we've missed who God is. And what we begin to do then is we create our own golden calves. We make our God, well, we can worship these people, or we can, we can worship this God, but we can't love those people, not them. I'm not going to care about them. That's someone else's problem, not mine. But when we begin to recognize that we can see God's presence in people who run to in the grocery store line, or the stoplight, or at school, or in our office, when we begin to recognize that those are places and spaces and opportunities for us to see the very presence of God. Right, I was thinking this week, um, I was at meetings at Olivet Nazarene University for a couple days this week, and... Um, one meeting got over like 8 p.m. And so I'm driving back to the hotel. I'm just tired. I just want to go to sleep. And, and I'm working really hard to never check my phone at stoplights because it's illegal now. Um, and so I wasn't doing that at all. And I'm watching the light and the green arrow turns and I start to hit the gas pedal and the guy behind me honks. 
And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Like, I was literally pressing the gas pedal. I'm like the person ready to go at every stoplight. I'm more likely to honk at you than I am to be honked at. And so I was like, this guy or girl, I didn't know yet. No one's catch that line yet. So I turn left at the light. I, I go, and I'm driving to the hotel. And so I, this person pulls up next to me, and I let them go in front of me because I'm like, I'm going to just kind of peek in there and see who this is. And then I look at their license plate, and it's from the state of Wisconsin. And I'm like, you know what? I'm in Illinois. And their plate says state of Wisconsin. I just left a meeting with 60 people all going to the same hotel. I'm going to bet you I know who this is. So then I follow them because we're going to the same place. And I wait to turn on my turn signal until they turn theirs on. You know, like just, just make you think a little bit. Is this guy following me? I am actually. But it's like four turns. So I'm like, turn right. Their turn signal comes on. Mine comes on. Turn right. Their turn signal comes on. My turn signal comes on. We get to where, like, go by all the hotels. We get this little weird, with a little weird kind of place in the back, tucked back in. I turn on my turn signal. I start going down the road, drive, and we're pulling into the hotel, and I'm right behind them. And I, God's Spirit said to me, hey, um, for all the times you're the jerk driving, how about you don't do something stupid right now? Because my plan was I was going to pull up right next to him and go, hey, how about that horn back there, huh? And I feel like God said, how about all those moments in which you're so hurried that you don't see someone else's but an object in your way? How about you not worry about it? So I parked on the other side of the hotel so I didn't get a good look at who it was. Pretty sure I know. Whole other point. But here's the reality for us. If we don't see all these little daily interactions as moments in which we can extend God's love in small ways, if we don't see these as moments in which we can do that, we kind of miss the reality of what he has called us to. In fact, we could say this kind of idea. Um, there's an idea that's known as liminal space, or like the space in between, how you can occupy two places at once. So if I were to talk about it in this way, um, like you could take your kids, and I mean, I'm sure there's some place that's got a line painted where like you're in one state, but there's the other state. And so you like, look, I'm in Indiana, look, I'm in Michigan, or wherever it is, right? You can go find a spot, and you can stand in both places. And you can say, I'm literally occupying two places at one time. Pretty cool. But here's what we'd say when it comes to our faith. God is always calling us to live in liminal space, the space in between. We're to live as if heaven is a very real reality in our life. We're also recognize that we live here and now. That's why I love the picture that N.C. Wright often paints of how we think about heaven and earth. It's that there are two sides of the same coin that we can occupy both in the same moment. And so we can live as people, as citizens of God's kingdom of heaven here and now in our everyday life. And then we begin to see people as people Christ came to save, that he gave his life for. That you and I are called to live and share love in such a way that we do it everywhere we go. So what might happen if you and I took serious that every time we had a transcendent moment, a moment beyond ourselves with God, that it was to be lived out in our everyday life? What if we begin to recognize that God wants us to have these kind of sacred, holy moments with him, not so that we can go, oh, do you remember when I had that mountaintop moment? But so that we can live it out every day of our life. So here's my invitation for you today. I know for me it's true, and I'm sure it's true for you. There's probably someone for you that's just a little bit hard to love that you deal with on a regular basis. Probably someone's name just popped in your head, or you saw a face. Here's the question that I believe God has for you and I. How are you going to love them well this week? And so the question for you and I is this today. Who is God calling us to love?
Who is God calling us to have a transcendent moment with him to then share that love with them? Why? Because he loves them just as much as he loves you. So what might happen if God's people lived as a people of love in the world in which we live? What might happen? What might our homes look like or our schools or our workplaces? What might happen if we lived as people who live from the place of love, who took seriously God's Ten Commandments, not just because it's a list of rules, but because that's not what love does. And so who this week is God calling you to love? Father, we thank you for this moment in which we have gathered together today. We pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who find ourselves drawn to you more and more, and that we would look and sound and act more and more like your son Jesus. So Father, we pray today that you would help us to be the unique people you've called us to be. That we live as a people who have encountered you in life-changing ways. That we wouldn't be like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, crumbling against you. But we'd find ourselves turning to you again and again and again. And we might recognize that just like the Israelites when they did wander, that when they turned back to you, you were gracious and kind and offered them respite from their woes. This may be true for us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name.